0: Graduated there and when I during my senior year I got accepted to Harvard for law school and I decided that I really needed to make a decision about my Judaism because there were certain things that I did but didn't really know why I was doing them and there were other things that I didn't do and maybe I should be doing them so I deferred Harvard for a, a year which turned out to be two years and I went to Yeshiva in Israel called Or Sameach and um, through the study of Jewish texts that I'd never really gotten into at all previously spending a lot of time at the homes of the, of the rabbis there, um, I got much, much more serious about Judaism, about Jewish texts, and about, um, about the, the, the practice of my Judaism. Um, a young woman whom I had met while she was in college and I was in college was very excited about the fact that I got more serious. And so I ended up during that era, at the end of that second year, um, getting married to her. And so I went to law school while I was already married. And then during law school, we had the first two of our, thank God, eight children. And then I deferred my first job. I didn't go into the family business right away. I went into big firm practice in Manhattan and deferred that job for a year, went back to Israel with my wife and and two children. And that's actually when I got started uh, teaching in addition to to studying on my own. I will tell you that for me, those two years, those first two years um, were transformative. Uh, There's no question that I was not the same person when I got off the plane home than I was on the, on the plane there. Um, and I always tell this to people, people will say to me, you know, I'm very busy. And I was busy. I was busy in high school. I got to college and I laughed like I used to think I was busy in high school. Then I got to law school and really laughed like oh, I thought I was busy back when I was in college. Then I started working and realized that law school was a joke compared to work. So you only get as busy as you are now. You're only going to get busier. And if you have the chance, maybe not right now, it's difficult to, to get to Israel now, but if you have the chance, even if it's in the States, to take off three weeks, a month, three months, six months, a year, um, there are people, people on the screen that can guide you where to go. It can be life changing. I have I have yet to meet a person who says I'm, I so regret that I took off a year to go to Israel. If I hadn't done that, I could have worked for 50 years instead of only 49 years. And I've met countless people who, like me, say that it, it changed my life, um, having taken the time. So. Um, the, the topic tonight though, is about the, um, is, is how to incorporate or how to successfully incorporate, or can you successfully incorporate visible signs of Judaism into the workplace? As a lawyer, I have to define terms when I say visible Judaism, that can mean a lot of different things. It's not just a yarmulke. Of course it can mean a yarmulke. It can mean for a man or a woman leaving early for Shabbat. It can mean leaving early for a holiday. It can mean leaving early for a holiday that everybody knows about. I need to leave early today. Tonight is Yom Kippur. Oh, I heard of that one. It can mean I need to leave early today. Tonight is Shavuos. What in the world is that? I had a judge once. We were we were um, picking a trial date, and it was it was in the spring. And the judge said, "Okay, how about uh, this date?" Like it was like a date late May, early June. And I looked at my calendar and I said, "Your Honor, I, I can't do that date. It's a Jewish holiday." And he smiled. He was he was a Hispanic judge. Um, and he said, he said, listen, Mr. Rothenberg, I'm not Jewish, but I've been doing this a long time. And I know that there are, there's Passover in the spring and there are the high holidays in the fall. There's no holiday in the summer. I don't know what you're talking about. I said, your honor, it's Shavuos. He said, what's that? I said, well, you know, the Jews—they came out of Egypt. Then they went, and Mo- Moses went up on the mountain. He came down with the, you know, with the tablets. He said, yeah, I heard that. I said, well, that's that's what we celebrate. Moses is a holiday. We celebrate that when, when Moses came and he, and he brought down the uh, the tablets and we received the, the Torah from God. He said, I didn't know. You know, I, I I respect that. So it can mean a lot of different things. It can mean telling a superior or colleague I'm not comfortable doing that because it's not ethical. And so that's what I want to talk about is what that's like because now having been lawyering for more than 25 years. I've had countless um, episodes where those can come, they can rub up against each other. They can, there can be you know, conflicts between your, um, your, your choice to freely and openly practice your Judaism and the, and the job that you choose. So the first time that I felt that, that um, potential conflict could not have happened earlier in my career. It happened during my first class at Harvard for law school. Um, and I, I can't, you will know, I'll tell you the story. This is exactly how it happened. It's hard to believe that this actually happened. So I've come back now from two years in Israel. I've gotten married uh, a couple months before in the summer. And now I sit down it's my first class. So I'm, I'm reacclimating myself to my secular career at, you know, nothing less than Harvard law school. And so professor Wilkins, uh, walks in, he's the first professor we're going to have in our one L year, our first year law school class. And he says, welcome to Harvard Law School. How many of you have seen the movie Paper Chase? Every single hand in the room goes up. How many of you have read the book One L? Every hand goes up. Paper Chase was a famous movie and then a TV show about Harvard Law School. And the star was this professor who would torture people, completely humiliate and embarrass them. And of course, it was a popular movie. And then it became a TV show because what's more fun than watching other people get humiliated? One L was Scott Turow's first book. It was a before he became famous for writing legal thrillers. He wrote a book, Chronicle, in his one L, which is a which is what you call a freshman law school, first year law student experience. And there were heartwarming scenes, like the first class, the professor would walk in, point to three people, and he would say, "I want the three of you to look at each other because by the time we get to graduation, only one of you is still going to be here." We all knew about these crazy intimidating stories. He said, "I want you all to know, there may well have been a time when it was like that here. It no longer is. We are not here to intimidate you. We're not here to embarrass you. We're not here to." to torture anybody. We're not here to show anybody up. We are here to educate you. And at times we may even entertain you. So I want everybody just relax, take a deep breath. It's not like what you heard. And you can like feel in the room like, okay, that sounds better than than what we heard. He says, however, we are going to use the Socratic method, which means I'm going to call on a guinea pig. I mean, a volunteer. That person's going to, to give me an answer to my question. I'm going to ask another question, question and answer. That's how we're going to learn. I'm thinking to myself, I don't think Socrates invented that. I think the rabbis did, but whatever. I'm not going to argue with him. He says, okay, let's begin your legal education. Now, in law school, unlike in college, you have to be ready on the first class to answer questions. In college, you show up the first day. It's a meet and greet. Professor goes around the room. Why doesn't everybody tell me your name? Where you are from? What you did over the summer? Then we'll talk about the syllabus. Then you get your first assignment. In law school, you already have been given your first assignment before the first class. I had a professor in my third year who walked in and just, there was no hello. She just started calling on people. One of the best professors that I ever had. You may have heard of her. Her name, is, her name was at the time, um, Professor Elizabeth Warren. She has since gone on to um, to some more fame, but she was no nonsense in the, in, the, uh, in the classroom. So there may well have been people who wanted to be called on first. Um, I didn't want to be called on first. I distinctly remember that I was very cognizant of the fact that I had been out of practice in my secular career for two years while I was in yeshiva, so I did not want to be called on first. There was a guy, while I was a 1L, this is back in 1990, there was a fellow who was a 3L, so he was a third-year law student, and I used to see him in the gym, you know, playing ball, not a bad ball player. Stupidly, I never thought of taking my basketball and a Sharpie and asking him to sign it. If I had done that, I would have had a basketball signed by a future president of the United States of America. But I didn't know that that dude, Barry Obama, who was shooting hoops in the the gym was going to go on to become the president. Who knew? So maybe Obama or people like him wanted to be the first person called on. Maybe somebody would raise their hand. I did not want to be the first dude called on. So everybody who's ever been a student, you know what you do if you don't want to get called on, right? You don't make eye contact. For no no money, could have paid me enough to make eye contact with the professor. So I am looking down at my notebook, making sure to look down. I'm not looking up because if I look up, it might look like I'm eager to get called on. So the, he starts pacing the room, and he says, all right, I'm looking down on my notebook. He says, who can tell me what did the Wilson court say about non-mutual, defensive, collateral estoppel? And I see, based on his shadow, I'm not looking up, but I can see I'm in the second row, and I can see that his shadow is right over my notebook. So I'm thinking, this may not end well. And sure enough, he says, how about you, Mr. Jew? And I cannot believe what I just heard. This is, I, I, when I tell the story, it's like I'm there, like it was yesterday. I'm thinking to myself, he made this whole speech. He wasn't going to embarrass us. He calls me Mr. Jew because I have a beanie on my head. This is crazy. Isn't that discriminatory? How can he do that? And I'm thinking like, I don't even remember what the question was. I'm having a complete meltdown. And all of a sudden, the guy sitting directly in front of me starts answering the question. The Asian fellow sitting in front of me, Thomas Jew, J O O. Now, I will admit, as I as I admit my sins today, that during the two and a half seconds that it took Tom Jew, great guy by the way, fantastic guy, to clear his throat and start answering the question, I admit I absolutely regretted my decision to be visibly Jewish in the workplace. I was saying to myself, "What am I thinking? Why don't I wear my? I'm from Philadelphia. Why don't I wear my Phillies hat, my Eagles hat, my my Flyers hat?" Why did I have to wear my yarmulke? I regretted it. Since then, not once. That was the first and the last time that I ever regretted my decision. And I could tell you story after story. We don't have enough time for me to tell all the stories. There are times when it's almost comical. Um, I had a situation where when I had my first, my firm represents injury victims, um, typically victims of, of catastrophic injury. So when I had my first very, very serious case, it was a fellow who was pinned between two cars. Somebody he was standing behind his car, and somebody hit him from behind. Twenty-three surgeries, crippled, um, and just terrible, terrible injury. And so, right before trial, the judge made a last attempt to settle the case. And so, he held two days' worth of settlement conferences in his courtroom, and it eventually did um, wind up in a settlement. The case settled for like six and a quarter million dollars. And after the first day, the offer had gone up from like two to three or four million dollars. i walking out of the courtroom. And there were about a dozen people who were in the courtroom, lawyers, insurance adjusters, the judge, the judge's clerk, et cetera. And the main defense attorney, the Irishman against whom I had been litigating for for the length of the case for a good uh, two, three years, cases take a while in New York, had noticed something. And so he pointed it out to me. He had noticed that of the many people in the courtroom, two were wearing yarmulkes. I was wearing one and the judge was wearing one. We were in Brooklyn, New York. It It was an observant Jewish judge. So as we're walking out, the Irishman says to me, Rothenberg, I gotta tell you something. Had I known that the judge was gonna be wearing one of those skull caps, I would have worn one also. I said, Jim, that's the difference between me and you. I did my research on this case. Why do you think I've been wearing this thing the whole time? So it can be, it can be humorous. It can be sometimes awkward and that's fine. We don't grow unless we leave our comfort level. When I first started practice uh, two months, three months into practice, it was the winter. So it was December or so, the clocks had changed and Shabbos is early and I know I gotta leave early I better, I said to myself, I'm working on a deal. I better remind the senior partner that I'm leaving early on Friday. Went to see him. I said, hi, you know, I'm working on such and such a deal. I just want to remind you that I need to leave early on on Friday because I'm a Sabbath observer. He said, when do you need to leave? I said, well, Sabbath begins about 4.15 where I live. I like to leave two hours just to be on safe side traffic in New York. So I'm going to leave about 2.15. He said, when does it end? I said, it ends about 25 hours later. So it'll end about 5.15 Saturday night. I can come right back in and continue work. I just wanted to let you know that we'll be shorthanded during those 25 hours. He said, let me ask you a question. Suppose you stayed in the office and worked until the week, because I'm thinking the deal will probably end late Friday night, another few days from now. Could you stay in the office and work until, say, 3 in the morning, Friday night? We'll send you home in a car. You'll start the Sabbath at 4 a.m. Friday night, Saturday morning, and then keep it 25 hours until Sunday morning at 5 a.m., Okay. So I'm, I've been a lawyer like five minutes at this point, two months at this time. He's a senior partner. So I was like, how am I going to explain this to him? There's no other way to explain it to him other than to tell him how it works. I said, I'm sure you're familiar with the, with the beginning of the Bible. He says, yes. I said, where God created the world in six days, then he rested on the seventh. He said, yes. I said, I don't have any flexibility. I have to rest. I have to begin the Sabbath at the beginning of the seventh day, You know, at the, at the end of the, of the sixth day, which means tonight at 415. Like, I don't have any flexibility. And his demeanor immediately changed. He said, I I want to apologize to you. I would never ask you to violate your religious beliefs. I just thought that maybe there was a way to preserve it. And we would just shift the 25 hours. I said, you don't have to apologize. It's an ingenious question. It just, there's no flexibility. There are certain areas where there is flexibility. For example, sometimes I hate doing it because I just have this thing. I I don't like being in a room where someone else in the room is having more fun than I am. So I hate when I have to go to a kosher restaurant. I can't eat anything. Sometimes there's no choice. Sometimes I have to go to a meeting, it's in another city, you know, in New York, I'm, I'm lucky in in Philadelphia, there's virtually nothing downtown, if you have to go to a business meeting, it's one place. So sometimes I'm stuck, you know, so that's why God created the food plate and Diet Coke, you know, you have some flexibility, you can go in if you have to, here, there's no flexibility. Um, however, we have to be mindful of, and I always tell this to people who are observant or becoming observant, is that it, it's not a, the, the legal term would be, it's not a sword and a shield, meaning that you can't, you can't use it to cut your week um, from, 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 from both ends. So what I mean by that is that imagine you take on, you're not yet Sabbath observing. You decide I'm going to start doing this. And by the way, that sounds pretty good. Leaving work at Friday at 2.15 PM. I like that. Okay. So I'll just work four and a half days a week. That's outrageous. You can't do that. If you're going to leave, let's say you're supposed to be working until five fifteen. make up, you know, you're leaving three hours early. You must, must make up those three hours. Because otherwise, you're, you're stealing from your employer. You don't get to work fewer hours because you're observant. That's that's outrageous. People forget that sometimes. What do you mean I'm observant? I have to leave early on Friday. You do have to leave early on Friday. But that means you got to stay late Thursday night. In my first year of practice, in big firm practice, you, you in order to get an, your first year, you shared an office with someone. then it was a big deal. Your second year, you got your own office. So that first year when I was sharing an office with someone, I would always make a point to, to at some point during the day on Thursday, to, re- to remark about how late tonight was going to be because I got to leave early tomorrow. Cause I didn't want her to think like, if she sees that I'm leaving the same time every day and Friday I'm busting out at two fifteen in the winter and she's staying till seven eight nine ten twelve one two three 10, 12, you know, that's not going to endear the Jewish people to her. It's just not fair. And so you have to be, you have to be mindful of that. The other um, benefit is that when you, when you have a set of rules that keeps you in line, um, it's a it, it it helps you in your representation of the Jewish people. You'll say, well, where, why, when did I when did I sign up to represent the Jewish people?" And the answer to that little question is when you were born, or if you converted, the day you converted. Whether you like it or not, you signed up to represent the Jewish people. Um, and and I will will tell you that there are constant situations. I don't care what business you're in. Um, there are. Um, situations that range from um, violations of Jewish law that, that wouldn't get your name in the paper, but would disrespect the Jewish people in halacha. Uh, I will tell you that, uh, you know, unfortunately, there's a really weird thing that, that maybe somebody will understand. Um, lawyers like to have their conferences in the desert. Back when we were traveling, I haven't traveled in months. Back when we were traveling, far more often than not, I don't know, four out of five times uh, when I was invited to attend or speak at a conference, the conference would be right in the middle of the desert. You get on a plane. For You, it's quicker. You could actually drive there or take a short plane ride, and you're flying and you're flying. And when you get close, all you see is desert. And then all of a sudden, you see the neon lights of the Vegas Strip because that's where they like to have lawyers and doctors and every other business they like to have. Okay, who, who are you kidding? When I go to these conferences, I face temptation the same way everybody faces temptation. And I get invited to things that are outrageous, and I, I you know I really represent—I mean, I visually represent the Jewish people—and I have to decline. But it's a—but it's all, of course, it's a—it's a—it's a battle to face temptation. I remember when I was in in college. Um, this is ages ago, when, as I said, I wasn't so particularly religious, but I did wear my yarmulke most of the time. And I was having a conversation one of these dorm room—you know—out in the, in the lounge in the dorm um, on our floor um, with a few other people. And a young woman with whom I was friendly said to me, Jewish, not, not, not particularly observant. Um, she said, you know, I'm jealous of you. I said, why are you jealous of me? She said, because you're observant. I said, why does that make you jealous of me? She said, because you don't have any desires. I said, oh, you know what? You're right. But you really shouldn't be jealous of me. She said, why not? I said, because I can't sleep at night. She said, why can't you sleep at night? I said, well, because I have no desires, you know, I'm an angel. So, you know, I can't sleep on my back because then I crush my wings. I can't sleep on my side because then they, they pull on my shoulder blade. Like what are you talking about? She thought that if you're observant, that means you're neutered. Like you can't possibly have normal human desires, otherwise, how would you be religious? It's like I have the same desires anybody has, and I'm no angel. I sometimes succumb to them. You get back up on the horse and you go riding again. It's a constant battle. But of course, we have we have desires, and that's what the you know the the laws are for. And say constant struggle, and you and you and you have to always be mindful of that struggle. Um, and always be, you know, and life is a down escalator. If you're not, if you're not fighting to, you know, to go up, you're, you're, you're going down and you have to be, um, and you have to be careful about that. And, and that's when it's just between you and God, you know, we were talking about temptations that, that as I said, won't get you in the newspaper, then there are the other types of temptations that come with, with every job. So I'll give you an example from, from my job, um, as follows. So, um, I represented the estate of a woman who was, uh, walking, Uh, doing her nightly power walk in Manhattan at 65th and Madison. And the little man turned white, so it showed her that she could walk. So she starts crossing uh, Madison Avenue, 65th Street. And at the same time, there's a green light for cars heading in the same direction. Now, of course, cars heading in the same direction have to make sure that pedestrians pass before they make turns. And this particular um, bit of vehicular traffic, namely a bus did not make sure. And it came from over her right shoulder to make a left turn. So she's walking straight. He's also going straight, but he's making a left. So she come, he comes from behind. He's a he, she. I don't know who was driving the bus for reasons you'll see. He, he makes a left turn from behind her, hits her, kills her, and keeps driving. She is left in the roadway. She's, she's dead by the time the paramedics arrive or soon thereafter. So the um, police canvass the area for witnesses because it's a hit and run. And it's a bus. You know, you'd think somebody would have seen it. And sure enough, somebody did. He was a cab driver, I think, or he was a passenger account, I forget years ago. And he tells the police it was a blue and white bus. Blue and white bus. How does that help me? At the time, there were probably about 10 different companies that drove blue and white buses in New York. There was the city of New York. There was Bolt and Greyhound and Trailways and Academy was blue and white back then. It could be at least a half dozen different possibilities. So here's the difference. If I don't find who the, the bus com- which the bus company was, then the, what I'm limited to is the uninsured motorist portion of my client's husband's policy, you know, the policy that she had. She was married, no children, she was married. Um, and in their policy, they happen to have a, a pretty decent policy. They had a $250,000 uninsured motorist clause in their policy. You should all check your auto policies tonight uh, after this lecture and see what you have. Get as much uninsured, underinsured coverage as you can afford because that's what protects you if the other person doesn't have insurance. People often don't know that. So that's what I can settle the case for, $250,000. If I find the bus, bus companies have massive amounts of coverage because they know that when a bus hits a person, usually the bus wins. So I can ask under New York law, which is which is pretty common. If anything, New York law is, is less comprehensive than a lot of other states. I can ask for pain and suffering. There wasn't that much conscious pain and suffering. There wasn't that much, but there was some. Must must hurt a lot to, to be struck a fatal blow by a bus. I can ask for her husband's loss of consortium, which is also not that significant amount, but it's an amount. And then I can also ask for something called pecuniary loss, which is a legal, fancy way of saying money. I can ask you guys, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, to award her husband the amount of wages that she would have lost over her lifetime, if we calculate them. So at the time, she was working on a street you may have heard of. It's downtown Manhattan. It's called Wall Street. Anybody heard of that street? She was trading bonds, making a million dollars a year at the age of 42. So even if we're conservative, we say she worked for another 20 years, 62. I'm not even going to push 65 or something, just 62, 20 years. And I'm not even going to push raises or cost of living increases that she would have gotten, or or who knows where she would have gotten further in her career. She was already making a million bucks at 42. Just a million dollars a year for 20 years, $20 million. And if you'll add on, I would ask you, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, to add on another million dollars to cover her conscious pain and suffering, and her husband's loss of consortium it's a $21 million case. I don't send out bills to clients. I don't work on an hourly rate. One of the few types of lawyers that don't. I work on what's called a contingent fee, which is common in the personal injury bar. doesn't cost anything to hire me. I get paid only if I'm successful, when I'm successful. And my fee is a third. So if I can settle a case for $21 million, my fee is going to be $7 million. And all I need is this one knucklehead to tell me which bus company it is. And I could care less which bus company it is. Just name any one of them and stick to it, and we're good. And that case goes from being worth 250 to being worth $7 bucks, million, $21 bucks, million, $7 million in a So I send investigators out to talk to him, investigator after investigator, no cooperation, I don't know, can't help. But I ask you, don't you think, you've heard me speak only for a little period, a short period of time, but don't you think I could have persuaded him if I had gone mano a mano, face-to-face, man-to-man, sat, looked him in the eye and said, sir. I represent the um, woman's husband, the woman who you saw get killed, and you're the only witness, and you told the police that it was a blue and white bus, and that doesn't help me at all. You're the only hope that that husband has. You're the only person who can give him the compensation that he so richly deserves. Just tell me which bus company. And the answer is, of course not. I sent an ex-FBI guy. I sent an ex-state trooper. I sent people who do this for a living. They interrogate people for a living, and they got nothing. So what difference would it have made if I had gone so the answer is: Suppose I had gone and said to him, "Sir, isn't there any way I can refresh your recollection?" And while asking that question, I reached into my pocket and took out my wallet. You tell me how much you think it would have cost. How much do you think it would have cost me to to buy? I mean, to refresh his recollection. Okay, thousand bucks, three thousand, five thousand bucks, ten thousand bucks in an envelope, cash. Slide it across the table. Anybody, by the way, want to invest with me? You give me $10,000, I'll give you back $7 million, okay? So of course that thought went through my head. Of course it did. In fact, when I when I was talking this through with a, with a colleague, you know, you trade war stories, somebody with, I, with whom I work often, he said to me, I have a great idea. He said, listen, here's what we'll do. We'll do the case together. I'll go speak to him. In other words, what he was saying was, I'll go speak to the guy. He'll go, you know, give him a smear okay? And I said, no, you're not. You're not going to do it, and I'm not going to do it. Why? So here's why. Because I know that there is going to be a deposition. And at the deposition, they're going to ask that eyewitness, I don't understand. You told the cop blue and white. And then you told Rothenberg or his investigator that it was Academy bus. Like, well, what happened? Now, hopefully he'll say, I remembered. Remember, I paid good money for this testimony. But what if he says, I got to tell the truth. You know, George Washington can't tell a lie. It's been bothering my conscience. Um, Rothenberg paid me $10,000 to say it was Academy. But I, I, I really lied. So what happens then? So number one, I get suspended from the practice of law. Number two, I have disgraced my law firm. And number three, far worse, I have disgraced the Jewish people because I represent the Jewish people. Now, you'll say to me, OK, Harry, you represent the Jewish people because you are very Jewy, 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 Jewish, you know, with your with your big, you know, yarmulke on your head. OK, and I will tell you that we are all very Jewy, Jewy, Jewish. I have this argument with people all the time. People say, you know, I'm not observant like you. And I said, ta- we're all observant. What are you talking about? Of course, we're all observant. If I went through, I see you like in gallery view, so I see a little box with everybody's picture. If I went through to each one of you, okay? I said, okay, did you murder anybody today? Harry, come on. No, I didn't murder anybody today. Okay. Did you Did you eat the blood of an animal? No, I didn't eat the blood. Did you eat a cockroach? No, I didn't. I'll go through 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 Torah laws straight out of the Bible that you observed today, okay? What do you mean? I'm not. So we're all observing, all right. So some of us may observe more of those laws. Some of us may be more careful, but we're all observing at least some of those laws, and we are all representing the Jewish people, like it or not. And I'll give you an example. I'll give you two examples. These examples disgust me, but I want you to understand what you're dealing with. Robert Kraft, the owner of the Patriots, we know, was arrested a couple of years ago. Um, I don't even want to say what the charge was. Um, you know, either you know the story or you don't. It's not for me to to get you know, to further besperch his name. So he was arrested for something, he was accused of something, and was arrested. So I'm traveling and I get the copy of the USA Today and, you know, outside my uh, either, you know, I guess, at breakfast at the, at the hotel. And I see this article catches my attention. Robert Kraft, accused of, and it says what he's accused of, gave hundreds of millions to charitable causes. That's like a really weird. Wow. You're talking about the defendant? Kind of interesting article. So I I read it, much to my, you know, and and I start reading it. Okay, here we go. Just weeks ago, before Robert Kraft won his sixth Super Bowl as owner of the NFL's Patriots, he was awarded perhaps a greater honor. The Genesis Prize is given to leaders of Jewish heritage who have attained international renown in their chosen professional fields and have made a significant contribution to improving the world. It's sometimes called the Jewish Nobel Prize. I'm skipping ahead. A Democrat, he is a longtime friend of President Donald Trump. He visited the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh last year following the mass shooting there. Why is this relevant to what he got arrested for? Okay, And it goes on to describe how he has given money to Jewish causes and he's given to to, uh, Jewish education and his alma mater, et cetera, et cetera. Just a sickening hit piece. Basically, an article to tell you the craft is Jewish. He's really Jewish, Jewish, Jewish. Now, they didn't have articles like this about anybody else who was arrested. There were some very high net worth individuals arrested, but they weren't Jewish. So I sent this to a friend of mine who was a huge Patriots fan. and I knew he'd go bananas. Very well-known lawyer. I won't say his name. I don't know if you want me to. So he sent me a copy of the email that he sent to the reporter that wrote this article. This was my friend's um, little letter to the, to the reporter. Nice job of revealing yourself as a classic anti-Semite. Next time, make it easier. Just write. Bob Kraft, accused of whatever, is a Jew, 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 I think that would do the job just as effectively and require fewer words. Keep up the good work. OK, needless to say, he didn't get a response. Now it gets worse because Kraft, you'll say to me, OK, even though he doesn't wear a yarmulke, he's spoken at Yishiv University. He's really, you know, he's a he's a philanthropist. So he's always linked to Jewish causes. But How about this one? Listen to this article. Trump's former lawyer heads to U.S. prison that offers matzo ball soup and full time rabbi. This is a Reuters article, okay? This could be, it, it should have been written in Der Sturmer back in Nazi Germany. Here we go. With a menu that includes matzo ball soup and gefilte fish, as well as a full time rabbi and a chance at the occasional visit home, the U.S. prison where Donald Trump's former personal lawyer will spend the next three years is unique in the federal system. The 52 year old Michael Cohen will be housed in dorm like accommodations at the facilities minimum security camp, which prison consultants say has become a destination for Jewish inmates due to its proximity to New York City's Jewish and upstate New York's Orthodox Jewish enclaves. He's going to what I like to refer to as Jewish heaven. And they quote some, you know, some guy who had done a prior prison sentence there. The camp offers, um, hang on a second, where's my next page? Um, the camp offers weights, and other exercise equipment, et cetera. And then he goes on to to, to point out it quotes the, it, it, it quotes the, uh, the, the, um, excuse me, Lost my second page. Um, it goes on to talk about the, the menu. It talks about, it has a quote from somebody else saying, but it's a great destination for Jewish men as if I'm going to go there, you know, with my, with my golf buddies. Now, Michael Cohen, no way, no how you can, you can read all sorts of articles about him and you are not going to find any article about how Michael Cohen wore his yarmulke and went to synagogue and left Trump early so he could make it to his Russia Shana meal but he was Jewish. And so because he's Jewish and because he's going to a jail that has other Jews there that write a hit piece about him. So like it or not, I don't care, observant, not observant, reconstructionist, reform, you know, conservative. I had a guy once told me, Guy said, well, we, he, people were going out of room. Everybody's like, oh, I'm observant and I'm modern and I'm Reform, and I'm conservative. And that guy goes up, he goes, I'm retired from Judaism. Okay, so whatever you are, like it or not, you're representing the Jewish people. You have to be mindful of that. Then the last thing I want to talk about is the, the other benefit um, that can happen um, when you make this decision. It's a big step to be um, more public or more serious about your Jewish observance. So the first year I told you, I told you that story about my first day in law school and you know maybe people said, what? And then we laughed you know, when, when I told you what actually happened. This one's not a laughing story. Um, it's a gut-wrenching story, um, but it's an important one, so I want to share it with you. So back in the 1970s, There was a radical group in Philadelphia called MOVE. I don't remember if they were revolutionaries or counter-revolutionaries. I don't know what in the world they were campaigning for or against. Um, They occupied an apartment building. They wouldn't let anybody in or out, including their children. They walked around wearing, like, like combat fatigues and and, uh, carrying assault weapons. They would, day and night, be screaming all sorts of things on megaphones, terrorizing the neighborhood. And so Frank Rizzo, the mayor, sent in the SWAT team. They kicked in the front door. And there was, you know, there was some hand-to-hand combat and they arrested them. And that was the end of MOVE. In the 1980s, they're back. There's another group. It's MOVE 2. Who, in their right mind, read about MOVE 1 and said, oh, that seems like a great idea. I don't know if it was relatives. I have no idea. But now MOVE is back. They're occupying another apartment building in, 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 um, in Philadelphia. And it's a new mayor, Wilson Good. And he goes and sends in the police again. And this time there's a shootout. They're actually they're shooting from inside the building. And there's some debate as to who um, okayed this, but the police get the okay to, to do something a little unusual, very unusual. They send a police helicopter above the building and they drop military explosive on the roof of the building. They don't realize that the movement members have been storing some kind of fuel on the roof of the building, which ignites. And the thought is that when the building catches fire, have to run out and it'll be easy to catch them. They don't realize there's going to be this small explosion. The building burns down. A number of move members, including some children, are killed tragically, horrifyingly. And 60 adjoining homes and buildings are burnt down. They basically burnt the neighborhood down. So in our Philadelphia office, we start getting phone calls, some from people who were injured, some from people who had property damage. Now, typically, if I get a call from somebody who has property damage, it's not a case that I take. it would have to be a very very significant case to take that. And here in particular, there are cases some worth 50 grand and some worth 10 grand, some worth 12 grand, some worth I don't know 70 grand, whatever it was. But my father said, wait a minute, we're getting so many of these calls it makes sense. let's just take them all. We'll take the injury cases and the property damage cases. you know we can end up we ended up with something like 100 clients. you add that up even if each one this one's worth 10, that one's worth fifteen, that one's worth 20 in combined in the aggregate, it's one lawsuit, just with a lot of names of plaintiffs. Let's take the cases. So we take the cases. The cases, at least the property damage cases, just a more straightforward, get assigned to a young lawyer in the firm named David, who happened to be an observant Jew, about two years out of law school. So he's maybe uh, 20, I don't know, say he's uh, 26, 27 years old, early in his career. And his job is to prove up these property damage losses. So for example... If you lose property and you're suing somebody, you can't say, you know, I had a vase and it was, um, it was from the Ming dynasty. It was worth like, you know, uh, you know, $8 million you gotta, you gotta prove it. You gotta have a picture of something, maybe a receipt from bed, bath and beyond. So he was helping each client put together their damages to prove the damages, uh, in court. So we love all of our clients. We love some even more. So he starts getting calls early on from one particular, very difficult client named Ernest Bostick. When am I going to get my money? Ernest, you gotta be patient we got like 100 cases. Other people have another 100, 200 cases. There are hundreds of cases. It's going to take a couple years. You got to be patient. A week or two later, when am I going to get my money? Ernest, like I told you the last time, got to be patient. It's going to take time. Just be patient. Finally, after a few months, Ernest calls David. He says, okay, I settled my case. Get me my money. He says, what do you mean you settled your case? He says, I spoke to the assistant city guy. David says, the assistant city solicitor. He says, yeah, that's the guy. He tells him the name. Sure enough, he had called city hall said that he was one of the claimants from the fire, and they put him through to, to the to, to the guy that David's litigating against, the young guy on the totem pole for the city of New York, the assistant city solicitor. He spoke to him. He says, I settled my case, $10,000. Get me my money. David says, I'll call him up. So David calls the assistant city solicitor. says, hey, it's Dave from Rothenberg's office. He says, did you speak to my client, Bostick?" Guy says, oh no, I, 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 I feel terrible. I, I, I didn't realize he was your client. He called me directly. I, I'm so sorry. I thought he was a pro se litigant. Pro se is Latin for knucklehead. I'm kidding. Pro se is Latin for self-represented. That's somebody who thinks that lawyering is like Home Depot. You could do it yourself, which you're allowed to do. There's no law stopping it. So he said, why should I give Rothenberg a third? I could just do this myself. So some people do that. So this guy thought that since Bostic called him directly, he must be a pro se litigant, self-represented litigant. He's allowed to speak to them. Had he realized that he was represented by a firm, he can't speak to somebody who's represented by a lawyer. So he made a mistake. He should have said, Mr. Bostic, he should have checked his list. You should have asked him whether he had an attorney, in which case he would have said, I can't speak to you. I have to speak to your attorney. So he apologizes. David says, Listen, it was an honest mistake. He called you. You know, I, I, I'm not going to hold that against you. He says, But he said he settled his case with you. Can I send you a release? Say he, he settles his case with you for $10,000. The guy said, What are you talking about? Settle the case with him. He says, He just told me he settled the case with you. He even told me the amount $10,000. He says, Oh, no. I know what happened. Whenever a pro se litigant calls me, I don't know if I'm going to be able to reach them. So I always document my file. I say to him, I say to them, what are you looking for? So he told me he's looking for $10,000. I documented my file. David says, listen, I told you I'm not going to hold it against you, but come on, can you do me a solid here? Can we just sell this one case? You know, he's, he's a little bit on the difficult side. You may have, you know, gleaned that from your conversation. You know, you did have the conversation. It's $10,000. Can we just sell this one case? So the assistant, city solicitor says, Dave, I'd love to be able to do that with you. It's not possible. You know what a bureaucracy it's like at City Hall. I got like, eight people. Up. I wouldn't even know who to go to. You know what's going to happen? In two years, we'll sit down. We'll have a matrix. We'll have a graph. We'll have an algorithm. This was before Excel spreadsheets. You know, and we'll sit there and we'll work it out. He said, there's no way you could sell this in one case. Said, there is no way that I could settle this one case. Okay. So David hangs up the phone, calls Bostic, tells him the bad news. It was, it was miscommunication. He just wanted to know what you're looking for, but he did not settle the case with you. Bostic says, oh, okay. Hangs up the phone. David. And the all right, in that case, I am going to go kill the lawyer in city hall. So he buys a gun with a sawed-off serial number. He goes in the city hall. The police later have the check-in sheet. It's Ernest Bostic in 12, 10 p.m. And he's sitting there five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, waiting to kill the assistant city solicitor, whom he's asked for by name. But the assistant city solicitor is out to lunch. At 1230, Bostic gets impatient, signs out and says, you know what? My lawyer must be in cahoots with him. I'll go kill him instead. So he comes to our office and he knows which floor David's on. And it just so happens that as the elevator door opens, David's walking by. They make eye contact. They recognize each other. Bostic pulls the gun. David turns and starts to run and Bostic empties the gun. He shoots David. He's got six entry wounds in his back. He's got six exit wounds in his torso. David collapses in a pool of blood. The police arrive in one of those metal paddy wagons before the paramedics get there. And so my father is in the back of the police wagon, holding the police van, holding David's head so it doesn't hit the bottom of the van. They rush him into surgery with the chief trauma surgeon in the city of Philadelphia. And he does 14 hours worth of surgery and saves his life. He lives. It's like ridiculous. Took six bullets through and through and lived to tell the tale. So two days later, at the time I'm probably around 18 years old, I would say, and I had met David at some, it was, my, it was my parents' firm. I had met him sometime at events. He said, You know, I'm going to go. He's not that much older than me. I said, My goodness, I'm going to go visit him. Not that I was so religious. It's, it's a nice thing to do. Put aside that there, there happened to be a mitzvah visiting the sick. I mean, come on. You know, you the guy took six bullets. You're going to go visit him. So I think it was all from, I was home all from school. So I go to visit him. When I get there, it's the middle of the day. And the only people there are his parents who thanked me very much. I said, Harry, would you mind? We just wanted to run out to get some food for us and for David. Would you mind staying? I said, Sure. That's why I'm here to stay with him. So I sit down and he's very, very weak. As you can imagine, having taken six bullets two days before. And he says, I have to tell you a story. I said, no, 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 you don't just just rest. You don't tell me. He says, no, I I have to tell you a story. So I pull up my chair closer. And he says, yesterday, the day after I got shot, the surgeon came to visit me and he introduced himself, told me who he was. And I said to him, like, I don't know how to, how do you say thank you to somebody for saving your life? He said, look, I'm just doing my job. He said, I want you to understand something. I doing this for 25 years i do the surgeries sometimes somebody doesn't make it they go to the morgue sometimes somebody makes it like you and then they're followed by another doctor i don't ever see them again i don't do any follow-up you already know doctor so-and-so is following up on you so i just want you to understand why i'm here because i had to tell you this you took six bullets as you may have heard already one of them grazed your spinal cord one of them grazed your heart and others were near major organs and if they had been any closer you would have been dead or paralyzed. If you had moved differently, if you were wearing different clothing, more or less, anything would have changed the trajectory, you'd have been dead or, or, or paralyzed. He says, I've been doing this 25 years, as I told you, and I thought I'd seen everything. I've never seen a case like yours. I've never seen somebody take that many bullets and have the bullets that close to major organs and survive, and you're gonna be fine. You're gonna be fine. So I just wanted you to know you had a guardian angel protecting you. Goodbye. And a and leaves. I said, Wow. He said, there's more to the story, but I didn't tell him because he wasn't Jewish, but I want you to hear it. I said, "Uh, okay, like you got my full attention. He says, that morning I left my house and I got into my car and I put the key in ignition and put it in drive and I was about to drive away. And all of a sudden I said to myself, wait a minute, did I put my tzitzes on? And I felt under my shirt and I said to myself, I don't believe it. I forgot to put my tzitzes on. So I said to myself, Dave, you can go to work one day without your tzitzes on. So again, I put my phone in the accelerator. I'm about to drive off. And I said to myself, Dave, how can you go to work without your tzitzes on? So I put the car in park. I turned it off. Took my seatbelt off. Went into my house. I took off my overcoat. Took off my suit jacket. I took off my tie. I took off my shirt. I put my heavy wool pair of tzitzes on. Then I put my shirt back on. My tie back on. My jacket back on. My coat back on. And I went to work. He says, Harry, the doctor said to me, if I had put any different, worn any different clothing, I was like, Dave, I got it. I got it. I will tell you. At the time I heard this story, maybe I was wearing my yarmulke or a baseball cap. Okay, one or the other. There's no way I was wearing sits when I was 18 before I went off these. Sheets. No way. Like the day I finished high school, and even there, I don't know. I know that I was wearing. Like what a what, a, what a pain. What an inconvenience. Okay. Not to mention, you know, the it's it you know it could get in the way for in certain you know uh, social situations. Right. There's no way I was wearing them. Since I heard that story, you can come and and check me unless I am in the shower or the swimming pool, they are on because it was very clear um, to him what had happened. Now, this is a very dangerous story. So I want to qualify it. I am not telling the guys out there that if you go out and buy a pair of Sitzes, if you don't have a pair and you start wearing them, they are Kevlar body armor. That's it guys. You could, you know what, put them on, go to the shooting range, step in front of somebody. You're, you're, you're Superman. Okay. I'm not telling you that you'd laugh at me. If I tried to tell you, you say, well, Harry, well, what about Pittsburgh? What about California? There, there were people in synagogue who, who were wearing, you know, talus okay? There were terror attacks in Israel where people who were in, in synagogue wearing the tallis and the tzitzis and the tefillin, and they were killed. There were Israeli soldiers who were killed while wearing their tzitzis. It's not what I'm telling you. What I'm telling you is that to David, it was 100% clear that he had done something extra for God that morning, and God did something extra for him that day. And I want to ask you, and I'll finish with this, and then we can take questions if, if we have time. Is that crazy? Is it crazy that maybe God sometimes can work that way? Um, I'll give you an example. Imagine you are—I um, don't know where people are, I don't know if you where you are in your careers—but you're, let's say, you're you're walking to work or you're traveling, and you have one of those little, uh, you know, duffel bags that you pull the wheel duffel bags, and somebody else has one, and they're not paying attention. They're they're texting with one hand, they're pulling the, you know, and they're pulling it relatively wide, and then they, they don't see you. And they knock you over and they knock you to the ground. You get up, you turn around, and the guy that knocked you to the ground looks at you and says, you got a problem? Like, I I don't know about you. I I don't know what it's like in LA. I know from Philly. That's a fist fight. Guy knocks me down and then mouths off to me like that guy's getting pounded, okay? Now it's an hour or two later. You finished wherever you were going. You finished your meeting. You're walking back, okay? And this time it's somebody else pulling one of those. Maybe he's got a knapsack over one shoulder. Maybe it's a student. Maybe pulling a bag, okay? Not paying attention. Texting with one hand. Knocks you down to the ground. Now, this time, before you get yourself up, you already got your fists clenched. Like, oh, what's going on today? Right? You're ready to pound the person. Except this time, the person who knocked you down comes running over. I'm so sorry. Can I help you up? I'm such a klutz. I wasn't paying attention. I, I feel terrible. Okay? What's your reaction going to be this time? At most, maybe you'll say, dude, just, just be a little more careful next time. What's going on? If somebody saw you in a silent movie, they'd think you have some kind of schizophrenia. Like, what in the world's going on? The, first, t- the same thing happened both times. Somebody knocked you down. The first time you got up and pounded the guy. Second time you're like, hey, no problem. You walked away. Well, what's going on? The answer, if you have sound, if it's not a silent movie, the answer is you're mirroring. The first guy was an obnoxious lout who was aching for a break in, cruising for a bruising. So you gave it to him. The second person acted totally appropriately, apologized, you know, felt terrible. was feeling like, fine. So why is it crazy to think that God maybe is doing the same thing? Like he's up there. I was like in my mind's eye imagining he was up with the angels, right? And this guy goes, and he's like, Gabe, Mike, Rafe, did you see what that guy just did? That dude just got out of his car, got undressed, put on his titses, got redressed to get back and got back in his car. Later today, when that guy needs my help, I got this. But God, aren't there going to be six bullets? I got this. You saw what that guy did for me? I got this later, okay? So I don't think it's so crazy to think that maybe he murders. You know, It always pains me when I have clients, and I have clients that that have surgeries you cannot imagine. Now, some of them have this have had the surgery before they even get to me. And some of them, I lived through the, ser- the surgeries. Like the, the guy I told you before had 23 surgeries. When he came to me as a client, he had had three. So I lived through 20 surgeries with him, 20 surgeries. It was just, it was beyond imagining. I, I remember reading, uh, this was last year. I thought I'd seen it all. I thought I'd seen everything you could possibly see in a crazy medical record after a crazy injury. And a guy had a different case. He had had surgery on his skull, he had a very bad head injury, and they needed to, to go in. So I'm reading the operative report. I mean, the doctor talks about how he used a harpoon. I'm looking at this going, Harpoon? That's what they used to kill whales. The doctor used a harpoon in this guy's head. That's crazy. So sometimes I have clients who come to me and they know they're going to have a surgery, a big surgery, and they'll say to me, You know, Mr. Rothenberg, you're religious, right? Yes. You know, can you pray for me? I say, Of course. So if they're Jewish, I'll say, What's your Hebrew name? If they're not Jewish, you know, whatever their, whatever their name is. Of course, I said, by the way, you should, you should also pray. You should pray for yourself. I don't know how to pray. I've never prayed before. Like, you know what? It's, it's, it's never too late to start. And a real good time to start is probably the day before your surgery, right? But I always wonder when that person prays for the first time, and I'm sure God is delighted, but I'm wondering what it's like. The person's praying for the first time. They're 20, they're 30, they're 40, they're, they're 80, okay? And God's like, have we, have we been introduced before? And of course, God wants that meeting. He loves us and he's waiting for us. But I just have to have to wonder, like the more we show that, that I'm doing this for you, and it might be inconvenient, and it might be annoying, but I know I represent you, and I know I represent the Jewish people, and I'm going to do this extra for you. It's not why we should do it. We do it just because he asked. But who knows? Maybe up there in heaven, he's saying, you did something extra for me. I'm doing something extra for you. And so I wish you all good luck in your continuing along on your, on your uh, Jewish journeys, especially with the high holidays approaching. And I'm happy to take questions if anybody uh, wants to, uh, to talk about anything. The only thing I do not want to talk about is the um, Philadelphia 76ers um, or <laughs> the Flyers. Um, so both both sore points tonight. But otherwise, happy to answer questions. Any
1: questions, anyone?
2: No, yeah, I wrote that was down a great some talk. Com- I wrote down some comments. I liked a lot of what you had to say. Um yeah. What's it called? I should have written the context where this was written because uh, I totally forgot it now. Okay. Um, oh, so it you were, the you writing.
0: In. I should just tell you if you were writing in the chat, I can't follow it because I have to like go off the camera to go find it. So I. Oh no
2: no no no! I no I know. I remembered I remembered the context. I was just writing there for my own notes, but um, okay. I was it was about the bus case with the lady uh, with the forty year old yep. lady that got hit by a bus. Okay. Uh, basically, it was. It, it sounded, you know, this is maybe kind of getting into the details, but it sounded frivolous that you could, you know, just bribe someone in the, the whole case. You could get all that extra money just by one person's testimony. I don't know if that would
1: hold up.
0: So so you're raising a great point. Um, and the answer is that it would all depend on how effective his testimony was. So if if the, if a, it's going to go to a jury, and certainly if they're going to defend by saying, now keep in mind, once he would, he would give us the, the bus company, it would enable me to go and really dig down and and no judge is going to let me sue every single bus company in New York and ask for all their routes. But if I have a, a good faith basis and now I can get all the routes and show the jury that they did indeed have a bus making, you know, at least that would have taken that route. That's adding some, some, you know, in of reliability. And then it just would have been like how effective a witness he is, but there is no question that I have cases all the time that if you have an intersectional collision and the, and the police officer asks each person, you know, do you have a green light? And of course, each person says, I had the green light. And then there's an independent, neutral eyewitness, not the, the friend, you know, who, or, or family member in one of the cars, but somebody who's behind one of the cars who says, that other guy blew the red light. That is absolutely every day that ends in a Y, um, that is more often than not outcome determinative if you've got an eyewitness who goes strongly one way. That's a good question.
3: Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Anybody
1: else? Joseph,
3: I have a question. Um, first of all, thank you so much for your amazing uh, lecture. That was incredible. <laughs> the stories are very uh, potent and inspiring. Um, I've personally recently been um, like wanting to wear my kippa at the office um, and wear tzitzit, you know, in public and stuff. But I've I've kind of been grappling with the like the idea of like what am I how am I gonna explain it to my my coworkers or my colleagues that suddenly like oh Gabe like we knew you six months ago you didn't wear a kippa or tzitzit and now you're not that they might not even know what those are even so like I guess how do you kind of explain it to people who don't necessarily know um, and like how do you how do you kind of get yourself comfortable to be at that level. Like obviously like even now in Oregon when I'm hanging out with my high school friends and like I I wear a kippah every day now but like it's been hard for me to like wear a kippah uh, now in my neighborhood. You know I wear a hat but like I'm I'm not sure how I feel about like fully kind of expressing that Judaism like all the way publicly yet. Um, So I've kind of been grappling that so with that. So like how do you kind of get over that i guess or how do you explain it to your peers okay so let's break it down all right i want to start from
0: from the outside in uh first is i would be mindful of um going all in all the time everywhere i will tell you full disclosure that i do not wear a yarmulke all the time meaning that typically if i'm walking the streets of manhattan i have a hat on that's usually because i'm usually going to work it's like a you know it's a fedora Um, Because I don't know who, especially now, given what's what's going on in the the streets of Manhattan, I have no idea who I'm going to encounter. And I do not feel the need to publicly proclaim to people who might be potentially, you know, violent anti-Semites, you know, that I am I am an observant Jew. So it's not it's not either or it's not like, hey, you know, I got to go to yarmulke and I got to wear it everywhere. Okay. So just be mindful, especially in the areas where you might be traveling. If you're, if you'd be be the only yarmulke in your neighborhood and you're concerned, especially you might be walking around at night that somebody's going to jump you, go talk to a rabbi about that. And when I travel, for example, I've spoken in Europe and they will tell me, like I went to, I was spoken in Germany a few times in the last couple of years and they absolutely said to me, so listen, we feel bad telling you this. You must bring a hat. Do not wear a yarmulke out on the street because it's, you know, you got to protect yourself. Now when we talk about going into work or going with, with friends, so that's a different story. So the nice thing there is that God has done this wonderful thing for us yarmulke wearers in recent years, which is that anything goes. You can't make fun of somebody for wearing anything now. I mean, you know what's going on. It's like, can you imagine making fun of somebody, you know, you, you know. yeah, this guy, guy's wearing African tribal dress at work, ha, ha, ha. You're, you're getting fired. Guy's wearing a turban at work. You're done. You can't make fun of anything. So there's enormous... Respect for diversity of expression, which includes visual expression of religious observance. So, so that's the nice thing is that I don't think anybody's going to start up with you. Now, to the extent that anybody asks, that's a great springboard for wonderful conversations. If it's a fellow Jew, the next thing you know, you may be inviting somebody over for a, uh, for a Shabbat meal. I love when I get on an airplane and take my hat off and sit down and, and I have a yarmulke on and somebody says to me, can I ask you a question uh, Or I get my kosher food? They're like, how exactly does that work? Does the rabbi make a special blessing, et cetera? I'm like, the next thing I know, I got another subscriber to my, you know, to my weekly video blog. Who knew that God put me next to a you know, a Jewish person on a, on a six hour flight. And if somebody is not Jewish, when you have a good answer, everybody always appreciates a, you know, a, a good answer. Okay. The, I, I'll, give, I'll, give an, I'll give an example of this. All right. Um, the, the reason that, that those of us who keep kosher, you know why we keep kosher? Because God said so. That's it. So if somebody says to you, why do you keep kosher? You say, because God's because God said so. Nobody's gonna walk away going, holy that was unbelievable. How profound. Because God said so. That's the right answer. But it just it, it doesn't have the it doesn't have resonance that's gonna stick to somebody when they walk away. It's gonna be powerful. Okay. So I heard another explanation once as follows. Now again, the reason we do is because God said so. But what's the reason why he may have said so? So here's the best explanation I ever heard. Which is that when we're hungry, we eat, right? You eat, or what do I eat? I eat whatever's available. When do I eat it? I eat it right now. Well, one second. God says, hold on a second, okay? You know what makes you human? What makes you human is your free will. So I want you to work on this. So when you're hungry, I want you to stop and say, is it a kosher animal? Fine, it's a kosher animal. Can I eat it now? It's a count. Oh, 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 one second. Was it slaughtered properly? How's it have to be slaughtered? It's got to be a, a certain ritual slaughterer using a certain knife, making a certain cut. Fine, I went to the shoche, he slaughtered it. Can I eat it now? Whoa, 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 hold on one second. When you exercise your free will now a little more, did they check the lungs to make sure there was no defect in the lungs such that it would have died anyway within a year? Yes, God, we checked the lungs. Now can I eat it? Not so fast. You have to take the blood out, you have to salt it to remove the blood. Okay, we removed the blood. Now can I eat it? Hold on one second. Where are you gonna cook it? I'm gonna cook it in the oven. Is it a kosher oven? People would say to me sometimes, you know, I, I, I generally keep kosher, but I'll eat fish at a not kosher restaurant. You know, because fish is kosher. And I'll say, you're right. But just realize if you take a kosher fish, a flounder, and you put it in a non-kosher oven, congratulations, you now have a non-kosher fish. It's got to be a kosher oven. Okay, God, I used a kosher oven. Now I can eat it. Hold on one second. What are you cooking with it? What do you mean? What am I cooking with it? Well, if it's a hamburger, you can't put cheese on it. crying out loud, okay, I won't put cheese on it. Now can I eat it? Yes. Now you can eat it, but make a blessing first. Now you see what you did there? You stopped over and over and over and over again. You're starving got to exercise that free will. And now think about it. Now apply that same thing to life, right? Somebody says something obnoxious to you and you are going to just explode. And you're like, no, I'm not going to explode. Because the same way I was able to stop and think through and not eat right away, even though I was passing by Wendy's and McDonald's and I waited and I drove another, you know, 10 minutes to get to the kosher restaurant. I'm going to stop. I'm going to count 60 or I'm going to wait overnight. I'm going to give that person the benefit of the doubt. So kosher lifestyle can include a lot more than you know than eating kosher so somebody starts asking you questions you can have these beautiful conversations about that and I think that it, it's it's inspiring now I would I would urge you you know to spend some time spend some time studying spend some time at the rabbit like to be prepared for these questions and also though however understand that you will everybody will I get all the time I get questions can't answer them I say you know what's phenomenal question I want to look into that I'm going to get back to you fortunately I have people I have you know I have resources people I can go, consult, but I don't have the, you know, it at my, I got the whole Talmud here, you know, and, you know, behind me. Okay. Yes. I've been through it before. It took many, many, many years, but I didn't memorize all of it. And so there's nothing people respect that, you know, let me look into that and I'll, and I'll get back to you. So um, good luck on that, uh, on that journey. Not an easy, easy decision to make, but good luck with it. But I think if you make it, you will, um, you'll be, you'll be proud of yourself and um, and others will be proud of you, especially your, um, you know, you, you, I can assure you that that, that your ancestors up there and the uh, whoever's up there, great grandparents or whomever, you know, is up there will be very very proud and will benefit from that decision.
3: Right on! Thank you so much. That's like Welcome. exactly that's exactly what I was looking for in the answer. Okay, good. I
1: would you. just like to throw in that many times, you know, um, in my own experience, based on my experience of learning with people and, and many students, so many people have this notion this thought that if i was to wear a keeper or to identify as a jew in any way then people are going to ridicule me i'm going to experience more anti-semitism i'm going to experience a more hateful environment and actually the opposite is true i've only encountered and heard good things from people um, by wearing my keeper very rarely actually i grew up in england so there i definitely did have some anti-semitism but in general, it's really rare. And I've actually only had good things. Oh, my gosh, can you give me a blessing? I've had, you know, in Oregon especially, because there's not that many Jews identifying as Jews publicly in Oregon. So I really got a lot of that. And it was beautiful. So um, you'll actually see good things out of it, not the other way around. I just feel that way. And that's pretty much what you were saying to me. Yeah, God will. that's great. God willing.
2: Thank you so much for the talk. I, what I really like about it is, I face kind of what you and Gabe were kind of talking about. Sometimes, I uh, I'm Joe, by the way. Uh, I work for I work for uh, my boss and his wife. They're not Jewish. They're actually Catholic, but they respect Jewish people. Uh, but they have no, they don't know anything anything at all. I've had to explain kosher to them so many times over the past few years. It's not even funny. But uh, they, they always ask me, though, like, you know, what can you eat? What can we do? You know, uh, you know, oh, are you taking, uh, you know, high holidays off? You know, like they understand it. It's almost it's it's not embarrassing or, you know, facing anti-Semitism for me. It's more like I think maybe just being an inconvenient, maybe being an inconvenient uh, employee. Maybe talk about that. I think, like, for example, if I worked for my own firm, I, I'm an architect. I work for an architecture firm mm-hmm. in L.A., if I worked for myself, obviously I would set my own hours. I could obviously work whenever I want, but, uh, it's a little tough when you work for somebody. Uh, obviously I don't work on Shabbat. I don't work on Saturdays ever, but it, you know, it comes a point where it's almost like, okay, well, you know, when this, for example, I'll, I'll give a perfect example, the holiday season that's coming up, right. We have Rosh Hashanah, there's two days of Rosh Hashanah, two days of Yom, there's Yom Kippur, there's Sukkot, there's Simchat Torah, there's all, you know, there's going to be like two months where there's going to be Chag, like just continuously. Mm-hmm. And kind of working through that during school was very hard, but I made through it, and now it's kind of just working through it as an employee. So kind of maybe talk about that. Oh, and it's kind of maybe similar to a law, uh, law firm where you kind of work your way up. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of just talk about that, kind of just from yeah. your experience, working your way up so, and kind of getting gain, the respect of your okay.
0: employer, I guess. So, so th- this, this ties in with the, um, with, the, with the diversity comment. You know, when you went, but my father came out of law school in the 1960s, he couldn't get a job in a big law firm because you couldn't get a job if you had a Jewish last name. Um, but things have changed very much now. I'll tell you myself as an employer, um, as you were saying that, I was thinking to myself, I have an employee, happens to be not Jewish, um, who's an extremely inconvenient employee, very inconvenient, okay? I would say it easily once, at least once a month, sometimes more often, you know, do you have a few minutes and she comes to see me and there's this issue, there's that issue, this issue, like, oh my goodness, how many issues, okay? She's my best employee. I don't care about the inconveniences, okay? Yes, privately, I might roll my eyes like, okay, what's coming now? But I always accommodate her because she is fantastic. She is, she'll tell me some cockamamie, ridiculous story, why she last minute, she can't come in tomorrow, But then she'll work that Sunday and she'll make up the time. And that's what's important to me. What's important to employers, they realized it used to be that what was important was you had to hire Biff because Biff, you know, was seventh generation, you know, from the Higginbothams who came off the Mayflower. And so that's what you need. And then you realize, you know what, even though Biff is a pretty good ball player, so he'll help our, our our law school, our law firm, you know, basketball team. But Biff is a bit of an alcoholic and isn't always there when you need him. And doesn't do great work. I have to always correct it. And is not particularly responsible. But then there's that... You know, bespectacled, you know, Jewish guy who, who we couldn't even let out on the court on our basketball team, but my goodness, the guy that's the best writer in the firm is always there. I mean, yeah, he leaves early for like these holidays that I don't know if they're real or he makes up, but he comes in Saturday night, he comes in Sunday or she, you know, they're, they're, they're fantastic. That's what employers realize is that what's more important is the work getting done, not the, let's use a fancy French phrase, Michigas. A Yiddish phrase okay, you know, for what's going on. So, yes, you might be inconvenient around the periphery because you have to leave early a little bit, etc. But on the other hand, if you're a good, valued employee, which I suspect you are, it doesn't matter. And I'm telling you this as an employer that stuff doesn't matter. Whereas, I have very convenient employees who show up when they're supposed to show up and who leave when they're supposed to leave, but oh, for I, I would trade them in a second for my inconvenient one who's just such a, you just get, does a much better job. And that's what I'm interested in is get the work done. Okay. You're going to drive me a little bit crazy. You know, if you're, you know, g- going here and going there, and can I overlook this? <laughs> and can I, can I, you know, can I work the next two Sundays instead of working the next two Thursdays? And, you know, and, but yeah, as long as you're getting the work done and you're doing high quality work product. So I think that's what's, you know, what's very important. And that's also why you know, the fact that diversity is one out is it firms have realized that is you hire the, the best person, um, not necessarily the best looking person or the person with the, you know, with the best lineage or who fits in better, you know, who has the right, you know, uh, look for the, uh, for the firm. There's no such thing anymore as a right look for the firm. Or if there is, it certainly has changed. You know, firms are falling over themselves to be, you know, to be more diverse. Now it is interesting. I remember years ago that we had, we had a, uh, there was a law school professor, um, with whom I was, well, I was very friendly. Um, I took his class for employment law. Um, he passed away at a, at a young age, um, he was, um, he was Jewish, he was openly gay, he was not observant, um, and he, I surprisingly, used to always make the following point. He used to always say, for all of us who are shouting about diversity, which is a big buzzword on the, on the Harvard Law campus when I was there in the early 90s, he said, we have to be consistent. He says, why is it that whenever there's a list of all our demands, okay, we want a Latina professor because there isn't one. We want a, a we want a, an, a, we want more openly gay professors. We want a transgender professor. We want this, that. He says, why is there never a request for an Orthodox Jewish professor? We do not have one. We have quite a few Orthodox Jewish students. They have no representation in the faculty. Why isn't that one of our requests? And he said, I'll tell you why. Because we're not, we don't really want diversity. We just want more people like us who are like-minded. And you know, an Orthodox Jew, they they may be more conservative. You know, we do, we don't want the you know, a conservative professor. He said, if you're looking for diversity, diversity means you want a little of everything. And he would always call out his fellow professors that, but that was fascinating because he was the, the the last thing he wasn't he didn't he wasn't saying this like I, wait, if I'm saying that, then I'd be going through the same thing. Yeah, I'm an Orthodox Jewish professor because you know because I'm Orthodox. He wasn't Orthodox. He's like, if you want diversity, you want so it it, it can happen. That even though people are saying we want diversity in the workplace, well, we we don't want that. We don't we don't want to be more Jewish and come on, okay? You know that can happen. You have to be you know mindful of that also what happens, and you can you know if you have to, you call people out on it. Um,
2: hi, Mr. Rothenberg. Thank you so much for speaking and sharing your wisdom and
1: a- anecdotes.
2: Um, I wanted to ask a similar question to Joe, which is when you're. Um, You know, applying for jobs, when do you think it's a good time to bring up the fact that you need to take holidays off? Should you do it during the interview process or after you get
0: hired? Okay, so this was the biggest debate among the observant Jewish students when I was in law school and it was a knock down, drag out debate. So there was a uh, a friend of mine who is now a partner at one of the big law firms in D.C., and he and I were adamant about the fact that we must wear our yarmulkes to the interviews. We must request kosher food. What they would do is they would come to campus to interview you. And then if they liked you, they would invite you back for what's called a callback interview. And then you would fly to whatever city you were planning to, you know, to work in. And we felt it was important to, to request a kosher meal during that because they would always take you out to a lunch. You would meet with a few people and they would take you out to a lunch. And we felt that it was critically important for us to do that because, you know, we're at Harvard Law School. So if we can't be confident enough that we're still going to get jobs if we're open about our Judaism, how in the world can you expect somebody who's in a lesser school to do that? Like, we got to set the example. And there were other friends of ours who were great students, top students who were like, you guys are nuts, okay? I'm not telling anybody that I'm a Hebrew and I got (laughs) to leave early and eat kosher food. Like, I, you know, the competition for these, you know, for the top jobs is intense and I don't want to. Risk disadvantaging myself. Now, I'm not gonna tell you who's right and who was wrong. I know what I felt, and I and my friend and I were both able to get big firm jobs. Um, so you can, there, there's no, you're, you're gonna hear. You, you, I'm gonna tell you my side, which is that I feel that it is important, and there's important important for for a few reasons, for a couple reasons at least. One reason is as I mentioned, you're gonna you gonna you'll be ga- groundbreaking for the people that come after you. The other reason is that I just don't like the optics of hiding it. I don't like the optics of going through an interviewing process and then you get the job and then you show up and you say, surprise, what, surprise, what I, here's my list. I got to take off for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and Shavuos and Passover. And okay. They're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Because then they're feeling like, well, well, of course that's not a problem. Of course we're going to respect that. That's the law. They have to respect that. They have to make reasonable accommodation. And unless you're like a college football coach and every game is on Saturday, that would be difficult to get that job. But They'll accommodate it, but I, I always feel like the employer would be like, "So you didn't trust me? Like you had to kind of trick me because you thought I wouldn't give you the job?" I mean, we we interviewed like several times, and you didn't trust me enough to bring it up. Like I feel like you're you're getting off on the wrong foot in your relationship with the future employer if you hide it and then spring it. So I am I am not a fan of that at all. Um, but other people feel differently. Other people feel, listen, it's cutthroat, and maybe if I'm neck and neck with somebody who's equally qualified you know, maybe the, maybe that, you know, doesn't get me the job. So I, uh, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a rabbi. I'm only giving you my opinion on this is that if you can do it, like if you're a good enough student, talented enough student and make a good enough impression, that you're going to get a job. Um, you know, then I encourage you to do it. And the last thing I'll leave you with is suppose you get to a place where they really wouldn't have given you the job had they known, do you really want to work in a place like that? Like do you want to work in an environment where they're like bristling, like, I can't believe this, this you know, these Hebrews and Shebrews, you know, they, they tricked us. And if we had known and, and we got to be more careful the next time, like, just, you don't want to work in a place like that. And you'll know it. You will know it. I did work one summer in a place like that. And it was extremely uncomfortable. Um, it was just, it was, uh, um, you know, the, and, and, and it was uncomfortable because the people who were running the show were Jewish and who were very embarrassed at the fact that, you know, at the, at the lunches I, I had my tinfoil as I was opening up the, uh, you know, the kosher meal that was delivered for me. It was uncomfortable. And I wish I would known that going in. I just would have gone to a different firm. Who needs that? You don't want to, you don't want to be in an environment like that. So good luck in that decision. Um, okay. So anybody else, or are we, if we're, if we're wrapping up, I just want to tell you and I'll, and I'll send it to, um, to the rabbi. So I can send it to you. If you're interested in that, I mentioned it before and the Rabbi mentioned that I do a short weekly video. It's on the total portion of the week or it's on the holidays um, they run on average, probably around, I don't know, four minutes, three to four minutes long. we we'll try to keep them under five for sure. Um, and if you're interested, you can either go to YouTube and just put in Harry's video blog, or I'll send the subscribe link to the rabbi that he can, that he can share with you. If you want to, um, if you want to check that out,
1: we'll share it with our group.
0: Okay. And thanks for, uh, thanks for tuning in.
1: Thank
0: you. I am sleep uh, because it's, uh, it's a little late for me, but, all right. um, all right. And hopefully one of these days you'll be able to see you guys live. You know when I can get on an airplane again. Amen. Okay. And if you're ever and last thing I'll say is if you're ever in the the New York City area, I live, I work in Manhattan, I live in New York Jersey, and we host guests, you know, all the time. So if you're ever you know coming in, want to come for uh, you know for Shabbat, just um, get in touch and let me know. All right. Thank you so
1: much. That was amazing.
0: Thank you're very. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Okay. Take care, everyone. Be well.
1: Hopefully, we can have you again. Thank Thank
0: you. You very well. Take care.